As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, it is with a measure of joy and expectation that we come to the scripture this morning and uh, pray that uh, you would bless us with your word, that having heard it, that your spirit would work it in us and enable us to trust and believe um, to the ultimate end that we might uh, be filled with joy. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, I want to read the end of this chapter beginning with verse 13. Nehemiah in chapter 8, please. On the second day, this being the seventh month, and previous to this was a discussion of the first day. But on the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Uh, Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Yeshua, Yeshua the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Now remember, Nehemiah had been charged by God and commissioned even by the king of whom he was a slave, the king of Persia, of whom he was his cupbearer, to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Now you remember the people of Judah really had been in captivity, in exile to the Babylonians for 70 years. Remember the Assyrians defeated the Babylonians and sent the people of Judah, whomever desired to go. And you remember from last week, if you were here from Ezra in chapter 1, The ones who returned were the people in whose hearts God had stirred. So God had stirred these particular ones, close to 50,000 ultimately, uh, of those who would return. And they returned and they began by rebuilding the temple. But for decades, the walls still remained down And so the city was vulnerable, so not many people found it desirable to live in Jerusalem, but they lived in the surrounding towns. And now, after Ezra the scribe had gone back 12, 13 years prior to reinstitute the worship in Jerusalem, now 
Nehemiah goes back to rebuild the walls. And he was doing more than rebuilding the walls, of course, because once the walls are rebuilt, then community within Jerusalem could be rebuilt and the people of God then could be restored as this worshiping community of God. So even though there was opposition, miraculously in 52 days, the walls were rebuilt. We saw that last Sunday. Ultimately, the the, the gates were secured. The guards were set. The people were, were, were named who had a right to be there, to be uh, in the city. And, and now uh, they had an opportunity to hear the law of Moses read, what we would call the Pentateuch, what we would call Genesis to Deuteronomy. This law was met, uh, it was read, and it, it was the seventh month, and, and a platform was built, and Ezra the priest stood on the platform and began to read, and he read for hours. From early in the morning until midday, he read. And you have to picture this, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people around hearing this Bible read to them. And there were various ones around, Levites and others, who were around who were teachers who would would, uh, station themselves so that they could translate and they could help the people understand and give a sense of the meaning. And you remember the people's immediate sense was to weep. When they heard it, no doubt weeping because they, they, they knew what had been lost in Genesis 3 by sin. And they even wept over the sin of their fathers, no doubt, and, and even their own sin. But, but not only that, we'll find later in chapter 9, they wept because they realized that given all of that, they were still slaves. That's next Sunday. And so they began to weep and, 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 and Ezra, the priest said, no, 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 now isn't the time for weeping. Now's the time for rejoicing. And he said, therefore, you need to be filled with joy. And they were, and they went rejoicing. They had a great feast on that first day, and they shared with one another. Those who didn't have, they gave. And, and so it was a great celebration, no doubt, because they were, they were caused by the reading to reflect not only about the fact of sin and the fact even that they were still slaves, but on the fact that they belonged to God, that they were they were his, and they would have this deep sense of joy. And it was to express itself in this, this rejoicing. Now remember last Sunday, just very quickly by way of review, remember last Sunday we talked about joy and what it wasn't and what it was, and we said it isn't a sense of fun and games of jo- or joviality or even a person with a cheerful disposition about life. That isn't this sense of joy. But joy, really, this biblical joy, comes from a deep and abiding sense that all is well. A deep and abiding sense that all is well. No matter what else is happening around us, no matter even what may be taking place in our own lives, whether there be hurts or fears, real physical pain, emotional pain, whatever pain you might be experiencing, real fears that you might have, regardless of all of that, In the midst of that still, there is joy. There's this deep and abiding sense that I know that God rules and reigns. And I know that I belong to him. And since he rules and reigns and I belong to him, then all must be well. Because you see, this sense of joy is based on what we know to be true. It isn't a thoughtless Emotion, it's thoughtful and it's real. It springs from what is 
really true. I, I look and I see, and yet there's something else I know that covers all of that, if you will. And, and it's this sense of joy. And so that's joy. What do you feel when you feel that? It might be at times that you're quiet. It might be at times that you're very expressive with it, rejoicing. But we know that this joy comes even in the midst of persecution. Jesus said, rejoice and be glad when they persecute you. James said in trials, counted joy. When difficulties counted joy. Because you know something even in the midst of those trials. You know something to be true that causes you to know that ultimately all is well because God reigns and you belong to him. That sense of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 46. And that great expression, be still and know that I am God. Now, that's a refrain, you know, at the end of, of that psalm. Be still and know that I am God. It, it starts out with a tremendous expression. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore. So because God is our refuge and strength and a help in time of trouble, therefore, we will not fear. Now, that isn't to say there isn't anything to be afraid of. Because he has gone to go, we won't fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters were in foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Uh, basically, what the psalmist is saying, that everything that you once thought was stable, now you realize is shaking. And it is no longer stable. The mountains are falling into the heart of the sea. Poetry, but, but that would make us afraid. But even if that happens, he says, no, don't be. Why? Because God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And he speaks of a river whose streams make glad the city of God. We know that there is a river of life in the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. He shall not be moved. The mountains might be, but he won't be. And God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. He's stronger than all of that. He rules and reigns over all of that. So even though the mountains are falling, everything is collapsing. Don't worry. God can speak. And when he speaks, he can, he, he has power over that. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariot with a fire. In other words, nothing can come against him and be victorious. Therefore, rest. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God is saying, I know it doesn't look like it, but I'm minding this door. And I will exalt myself. I'll show myself. I'll, I'll, I'll show that I am. Doesn't look like it now, but trust me, I will. And when I do, if you belong to me, all is well. So you can rest. You can be still. The Lord of hosts is with us, that is, God Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, you can only take that, be still, if you know that God is for you. 
if you know that he is your God and you belong to him. Not in some general abstract way. Not when the mountains are falling into the heart of the sea. But in a real and personal, latching on, knowing kind of way. When you know that no matter what it appears to be, that God Almighty is with you and for you, only then can you really be still. Because you know you can't stop the mountains from falling into the heart of the sea. You know you can't do that, but you know he can and he'll exalt himself. uh, and, And thus, you know, that still all can be well. And so, no doubt, as the people heard... The law being read, they would hear that God was with them. They would realize, whoa, we're that people. We're that people. That people whom God has made covenant with. We're that people that God tabernacles with and lives among. We're that people that are the heirs of the promises to, to, to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. I'll bless you. Make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And all the families of the earth in you shall be blessed. They say, we're, we're really, you know, we're, we're, that, we're that people. We're, we're that people that were delivered from Egypt when we were in slavery. And God sent his servant Moses back to us. And he gave us this name, this name I am who I am. I am has sent me, Moses, to you. Say to this, they would hear, to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Uh, This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all nations. I am has sent me. That is God Almighty. And this is the personal name of God to you. This is the name that should be on your lips when you come to me. This is, I am, I I am God Almighty, the self-existent one. And I've come to rescue and I've come to deliver you. And they would think, wow, that's us. And then the the longer uh, they would listen and come to Exodus 19. And they would hear this, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Uh, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you shall be my treasured possession among, among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And they would hear that and they would say, that's us. We are that people. We are God's treasured possession. Everything is his. But we're his special ones. We're his treasured possessions. He can have everything. He can have anyone. And yet... He has us. And then they would hear this in chapter 20 of Exodus. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Yes. And then they would listen and they would hear the law. And rather than to be a burden to them, it would be a delight. Yes, of course. This is the God who's delivered us. Therefore, why would we worship anyone else? 
What a great God who comes to us and, and gives himself to us, if you will. And, and he says, worship me. I revealed myself to you by being your deliverer. Now, now, now here, of all the people of the earth, be mine. Worship me. And they see the blessings from faithfulness to the worship of God. And what could be better than the blessings that would come from God as they worshiped, as they obeyed him. They would be the very ones who would have priests, Exodus 28. They would be the very ones who would have, have a priest who on his breastplate would be their names. The names of their families. And the priest would intercede before God and we're that people, you see. And we're that people in whom and among whom God will dwell, Exodus 29, I will dwell among the people of Israel. I'll be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am their God. And then, of course, they would know that this is the very God who lives, who lives among them. He is their God. They are his people. Exodus 40. When this tabernacle, this tent of meeting was built, And God dwelt in it. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud wasn't taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. Fire was on it by night in the sight of of all the house of Israel through all their journeys. They said, that, we're that people. And if we're that people, then we can indeed rejoice. I may burden you with one more definition of joy. I gave you mine. This is one by a seventh, late 17th century Dutch theologian, Wilhelmus Brackel. Great name. Um, he puts it like this. Okay, remember, this is from the 17th century. So we'll unpack it a bit. It's not unlike mine, but it's way better. The spiritual joy consists in a delightful motion of the soul that is something is generated within us that brings delight. And it's generated by the Holy Spirit in the heart of believers. So... Um, something that the Holy Spirit works in us by his word, by what we know to be true, by what he convinces us of, bears witness to us. Whereby he convinces them of the felicity of their present estate, meaning the blessedness of their, of their present estate, their good fortune, if you will. You're blessed. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and you know, I suspect in life, various situations and circumstances, you don't always feel blessed. <laughs> but that's a work of the Spirit, you see. That in the midst of that, somehow, to let you know that all is well, that's this inner abiding deep sense of well-being. To this, this sense, you see, of the blessedness, the good fortune, really, of your present estate. That means that you belong to God. So you can be still, you see. And causes them to enjoy the benefits of the covenant of grace. You see, he, 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 he says to us, enjoy the, 
benefits of the covenant of grace. What, what are the benefits of the covenant of grace? We could list them all day long, but, but just in very shorthand form. Forgiveness of sins. Righteousness. Being justified before God, given the righteousness of Christ. Think about that. Think about you and me standing before God and he sees us as righteous. Because Jesus covers us. He's the righteous one. Do you think about that? And so the Spirit of God, you see, takes us there and causes us to embrace that. Contrary to every other inclination that we have, we say, that's the truth. And then adoption. That that God adopts us, takes us to be his very own. To love us as our Father, perhaps not as the some of the fathers we have known or we have been, but the perfect, holy, and good Father. The Father as a Father should be, and then more than we could ever imagine. You see, something that's that personal. Now we know, you see, that God's love for us is not based on our own merit. The Israelites knew that in a couple of humbling passages in Deuteronomy. The first in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord lays that out. They would have heard this, verse 6 in Deuteronomy 7. For you're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of of the earth. Now, if I hear that, I'm all of a sudden being a bit puffed up, right? Wow, of all the people who took me, that's great. Uh, verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. By that he means you really weren't much. Even compared to all the other people, you weren't much. But it's because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh. In other words, the only explanation the Lord gives for loving us is that he loves us. It comes from him. In fact, he goes on to say in chapter 9, he says, don't say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, that is your enemies. It's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of the nations the Lord your God is driving uh, them out from before you. Verse, uh, verse uh, 6 Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you're a stubborn people. In other words, it isn't because of your righteousness. It's because that he loved you. Now when you hear that, don't think though that it was random. Don't think that God assigned to everybody in creation through all of history a number and then began a random number generator and picked every seventh one and said, okay, I'll love you. It isn't like that. 
in the mystery of his great love. Though nothing in us individually to attract him to us, his love for us as his love for Israel was personal. And it comes with all the amenities. Affection. Real affection for us. Real compassion for us. It's a love wherein God even humbles himself through Jesus to show his love to us. It's gentle. A bruised reed he will not break, a burning flax he will not snuff out. Speaking of the Messiah, his love for us in Jesus is gentle. He, he touches us in places where we're most vulnerable, ready to break or be snuffed out. And his touch is such that it doesn't break us, but it strengthens us. It's amazing, you see. It's forgiving. He's grieved when we sin. It's personal. I'm honestly, I don't know how to put all that together, but it's true. It's not based on anything in us that comes from him, but yet it's not random. It's personal to us. And that is a blessing, a benefit of the covenant of grace to know his love like that. And until you do, until you know that it's that personal, it's, it's really hard to be still because just knowing his almighty isn't enough power is scary in the hands of the wrong one power is is scary in the hands of an enemy but when he's your friend because he loves you and he's made you his child his friend then you, you know that he really is for you and not against you so you can know that even in pain and even in suffering and even in disappointment and even in loneliness and even in difficulties and even in fear of future you know joy because the Holy Spirit makes known to you this benefit he God Almighty loves you and his spirits at work in you Always producing good in you. The good that is that which is true of Jesus in you. And he'll enable you to persevere. And then he goes on, this author does, theologian, to say, and the Holy Spirit also convinces, assures them of their future felicity. That is uh, the future blessing that of what is all to come. See, this, this sense of love is... To know it, the love of God, is so necessary to us. They would know it in the, in the sense that God had loved them. They would know it in the sense that God had stirred the hearts of their families to return. That God said, this place is for you. I want you here, you in particular. And even as we looked at Ephesians chapter 1 last Sunday, this week, if we could look at Romans and chapter 8, verse 29. For those 
whom he foreknew. Now, when we read that expression, it doesn't mean that he simply knew something about you or knew you existed. But this sense of foreknowing is a sense of loving. To, to know is to, it isn't simply to know about, but to know intimately. To be joined with. To be known. That's what the biblical sense of knowing is. That's why it can be used of marriage. A man knew his wife. It's not that he knew her name or knew she was over there. But he knew her. They were joined. And this foreknowing means that, that even before the creation of, God, of the world, God loved us. He loved us. And therefore, he also predestined us to, to this good, to be conformed to the image of his son, so that his son might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so these ones he loved he, he, and predestined, he, he called, that worked in our hearts so that we would know the truth of Jesus. And he justified, he declared them to be righteous because they would come to believe and, 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 and he would clothe them with the righteousness of Christ, forgive them of their sins. And then they would know future glory as well. That's the only thing that makes verse 28 make any sense at all. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You see, it's only when we know that he loves us that we can trust that good will come in every circumstance. Because we know he's almighty, nothing can thwart him. We know that he is good. But the question is, will he bring good to us? Well, yes, if he loves us. And nothing can thwart him from doing that. And so we can have the confidence in every situation, no matter what it is. This is not a trite Christian expression. This is something we cling to with all our might. That all things, because God is almighty and because he loves us, work Together for good. And that good is the eternal good. That good is the eternal good that we be conformed to his image. Uh, Richard Sibbs, another, uh, when was he, late 16th, probably century, maybe early 17th century, put it like this. He says, whatever is good for God's children, they shall have it. For all is theirs to further them to heaven. Then he goes on like this, being the Puritan that he is. If crosses be good, they shall have them. If disgrace be good, they shall have it. For all is to serve our main good. And that main good is that we be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so Romans 8 goes on to say that then nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because if he's for us, who can be against us? It doesn't really matter. But we have to have this sense that God is for us. And we can only have this sense that God Almighty, the good wise one, is for us if we really know that he loves us. Not just some sense of randomness, not the way of general love that, oh yeah, God loves his creation and all of that. But that I know, and this is astounding, that God loves Bill. And always has.
Now I say all that to say that the Feast of Tabernacles was, a, was to be a time of rejoicing. That's what we read in Nehemiah. And, and as the fathers were reading through and studying, because they were the fathers, so they needed to know this word, hear it read, but then take time and learn it so they could teach it to their families. There's a word there for fathers, by the way. But as they studied, it was the seventh month, and they go, oh, reading through Leviticus 23, we, we should celebrate a feast in the seventh month. There was another feast. I don't know why they don't mention the Day of Atonement. That came before this, but that was the 10th, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths was the 15th. But, but, but they began to read, and they realized, we, sh- we, we should have this, this feast. We should do it. Ezra, during his days, Ezra chapter 4, they did it. And what's emphasized is all the sacrifices that were made. It was a seven-day feast with an eighth-day tacked on to clean up. And there was a seventh-day feast. And it was, uh, they sacrificed almost 200 animals during that week. And, and, and ephods and ephods of grain uh, they used as well. And wine and so forth. And it was a feast of rejoicing. It was seven days of rejoicing, of, of partying in the Lord, and I don't say that irreverently, I, I'm, it, was, it was a real loud celebration. The kids went wild, dancing and singing, and everybody else did too. There were all kinds of instruments, and day by day there were all of these sacrifices, and people gathered literally to, to, to celebrate during a, a seven-day period, all right? And um, they would take palm branches, and they would wave them and they would take fruits and hold them up because part of, of the celebration on the one hand was the, the ingathering, the harvest. And, and then they were also, it's appropriate day for today, they were also then praying ahead for rain for the next one. Right? And so, 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 so one of the big fixtures of the celebration was water. In fact, every morning... One of the priests would go down to the pool of Siloam with with big basin to get water, to bring it back to the altar, to pour out on the altar with wine as an offering to the Lord. But during the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, well, well, you need to know this, where the people would, would, would build little booths out of mud and leaves, and they would reenact, if you will, the time in the wilderness. And they would reenact during that time. And that would cause them great rejoicing as they would think back on how the Lord kept them during that time. They left slavery, their people, went to the promised land. In the middle 40 years, he kept them. Though they had sinned and he had forgiven, he kept them until those who had sinned had died off and their children then had grown up and they would then enter the land. But they would think, how did God protect us with manna, with water from a rock? And though we sinned and grumbled still, he kept us during this time. And Moses writes that their clothes didn't wear out for 40 years. Wow. Think of that, guys. No shopping for 40 years uh, for clothes. Um, and their, their feet never swelled. And they walked all, all over the place. But God kept them, and they were reminded of that. 
And even their own day, they were reminded they had been in exile. And God delivered them, and now here they were in Jerusalem. He was faithful to his word. And so they would take these palm branches and they would sing and they would dance and, and all the instruments would be around. And on every morning when the priest would go from the temple to the pool of Siloam, thousands of people in this day would follow him. At least in the, by the days of Jesus. They would follow this priest and uh, they would sing and dance all the way down and the priest would get water and, and they would begin to, to, to sing from Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And they would begin to sing and wave their branches. And, 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 and the, the image of the water was certainly rain for the harvest, but it was more than that because in the scripture they realized that the water represented life. There was a water, there was a rivers, rivers in the Garden of Eden out of the, out of the temple that Ezekiel talks about. There, there are rivers of life that flow. And in fact, uh, Isaiah the prophet, we read this for our call to worship, uh, this morning. With joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation, and you shall say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, proclaim that his name is exalted. And they would, they would get this water and they would sing about the wells of salvation. And they would go back to the temple singing and dancing and the men would be waving their palms and it would be really loud and the kids would probably be way more unruly than we would ever let our kids be around here. Right? It's, it's even, it's like the Royals Parade kind of thing. I mean, it, it's, it's that kind of, of irreverent seeming to us situation, but very loud. And, and then uh, the water would be poured out and the people would think of, yes, God's provision of rain for food, but also his provision of life through the Messiah. And then there would be lights on the last day of the feast, the great day, at night. And again, we can't imagine darkness, right? So it's light pollution everywhere we are. But just everything dark. When it gets dark, it's dark. And on the and and this was the the, the equinox, so equal. Uh, day and light. And so when it would become dark, they would, on great pillars, 75 feet high by the days of Jesus, in the court of the women, big bowls of oil, four of them. And the, you know, the Mishnah says that the young priests, I don't know why it had to be young, had to climb up with these 10 gallon vessels of oil and fill these big basins, four of them. The wicks inside literally were last year's priest's liturgical garb, okay? So they took them and they, were, they, they tied them up and they put them in there and they lit them on fire. And all the darkness was dissipated. And they would see God is light. Life, water. Darkness dispelled. And they would rejoice. So the scripture tells us that Jesus on the last and great day of the feast stood before them. Now we don't know exactly when this last day of the feast was, whether he's referring to the seventh day or the eighth day. If he's referring to the seventh day, it could well be that the, the right after all the water was poured out, Jesus stood before them and said this, or it could have been the next day when no water was poured out and, and the absence of it was a bit odd after doing it for a week. On the last and great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, 
Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And Jesus, in essence, said, You know you've been celebrating me all these generations. You know the rivers of the water of life. I'm the source of the rivers of the water of life. My spirit, whom I will give. And if you thirst, he said to the woman at the well, if you thirst, I can give you water and you will never thirst again. Jesus is saying, if you believe in me, I will satisfy you. And you can have joy because regardless of the circumstance and situation, My grace through my spirit, the life that he gives will be sufficient. And then again, later he said that day, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, I don't know if he did that when all the lights went, boof, and Jesus said, that's me. I dispel the darkness. All the evil in the world, I dispel it, and I'm light. Rejoice. Or if it was the next day when they were thinking about the great light display, and it wasn't there, and Jesus said, oh, by the way, I'm the light of the world. I dispel the darkness. All that is evil, all that is dark, I, I dispel. So these feasts were feasts to rejoice. This feast is a feast for us wherein we are to rejoice. And we're to rejoice because Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. He says, come to me, all you weary and burdened, I'll give you rest, real rest. Know that I'm God, rest, that kind of rest. Joy, know that all is well because I'm God. Know that as you thirst, I satisfy. Your thirst for forgiveness and reconciliation, I satisfy. Your thirst for righteousness, I satisfy. Your thirst for comfort, I give it, I satisfy. In the midst of darkness, I'm the light that you might see God. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread after giving thanks. He broke it, he gave it to them. He said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And and that sounds on its face morbid to declare someone's death, doesn't it? But declaring his death is the very thing that should fill us with joy. Because we know that the waters that abundantly flow, the waters of life that abundantly flow, have come because of what Jesus has done. And we know that we no longer are in utter darkness, but the light has come. And we can see 
I don't know about your sins when you come to the Lord's table. But I say that while it may remind you of your sin and cause you to weep, it should never end in weeping, but rather in joy because of the recognition that Christ has come. And when his spirit enables you to thirst and realize you have nothing, that you're poor in spirit and you mourn, he comforts. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, he gives you his and works it in you. And he's the light that we might see. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us, each of us, that even as we sit here and reflect upon our present blessedness, and we will know the love of God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that he demonstrates his love for us, that in while we were still sinners, he died for us. That we would know it. That we would see it. And you would enable us, Holy Spirit, to enjoy the benefits of the covenant of grace, forgiveness of sins, righteousness, Adoption, the work of the Spirit in us, the blessed perseverance and glory to come. And it's that glory to come that we would think of even as we come to this table, to know that a day will come when we'll be with the Lord, all his people together, a community yet individuals, a community loved, individuals loved, and all will be well. So take this bread and this juice and set it apart, God, in such a way that we know we're in the very presence of this one. He was the manifestation, the guarantee of the love of God for us. And this I pray in Jesus' name.